The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and today. 1966, Part 3, August. What a day for a daydream. What a day for a daydreaming boy. And I'm lost in a daydream. Dreaming about my bundle of joy. And even if time ain't really on my side It's one of those days for taking a walk outside I'm blowing the day to take a walk in the sun And follow my face on somebody's new mowed lawn I've been having a sweet dream I've been dreaming since I woke up today It's tired me in my sweet dream Cause she's the one makes me feel this way And even if time is passing me by a lot I couldn't care less about the dues you say I got Tomorrow I'll pay the dues for dropping my low A pie in the face for being a sleepy bulldog Yesterday and today. Back from the Beatles tour of Europe and Asia on Monday, August 1st, 1966, Paul McCartney appeared solo on the BBC Light Radio program, David Frost at the Phonograph. Paul was interviewed for the show. How are you, Mr. McCartney? Okay, thanks. Fine. This afternoon. It's lovely afternoon. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Dark out, but dark out. Wonderful, but otherwise wonderful. It is alleged by certain people in the in your organization that you're very soon off to America. Does that fill you with delight? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I enjoy it in America. 
I think I like England much better as a place. Um, why, why? Well, I don't know. It's the attitude of the people generally in America that makes it um, not as good a place to be in as England. What do you mean? Sort of just more intolerant or more... Well, I don't know, really. The kind of people we meet in America tend to be, uh, you know, heads of corporations and publicity <laughs> things. So I know we don't get a good view of American life, but they all seem to believe that sort of money is it, which is uh, true in true to an extent, but not uh, all the time. You know, they, they believe in it all the time. On the 5th day of August, 1966, Parlophone releases another single and LP. The single is Yellow Submarine, backed with Eleanor Rigby. Yellow Submarine. And we will march till three the day to see them gathered there. From Lander Groats to John O'Green, with Stepney do we tread. To see us Yellow Submarine. We love it. In the town where I was born, lived a man. Sailed to sea, and he told us of his life in the land of submarines. So we sailed up to the sun till we found the sea of green, and we lived beneath the waves in our yellow submarine. Paul McCartney. And you know that moment just before you drift off to sleep? This is a little limbo moment. And with me, one of the things I find myself doing because I'm a songwriter is I thinking of ideas for songs. And somehow in that little limbo moment, I thought, 
oh, this might be good for Ringo, a children's song. Because Ringo was always very good with kids. And this idea of a yellow submarine, like a kid's book or something, came into my mind. So I think the next day I just started writing it. Ringo conducts Patty Harrison, Mal Evans, Neil Aspinall, George Martin, Jeff Emmerich, the studio staff, and the other three Beatles in the chorus. The submarine sounds were created by John blowing bubbles through a straw and George swirling water in a bucket. The interesting bit about the sound in the middle of that, besides the, like the engine noises and the water which was blowing in a straw, I mean, we did all our own sound effects. And uh, I was at one end of the studio shouting, Up, off to caper, off to caper! And John was in another, Hey, Captain, how are you, Captain? You know, we all just sort of made it up on the spot. The sounds were pre-recorded and added to the mix later. The song is reminiscent of the Peter Sellers material that George Martin had produced in the 50s. Then we were, we were embarking it on, on the sound pictures thing. I mean, Yellow Submarine very much was almost a goon record with John and actually in the studio with a, um, with a, with a, with a sort of a amplifier so that he was actually making a sound in the studio through a microphone with his, um, you know, the answers to, to the voice. George Martin did not attend the session. He was homesick with a bad bout of food poisoning. So Jeff Emmerich was in charge of the Studio 3 control room. The next song started off with Paul sitting at the piano getting the first line of a melody. It was originally going to be Miss Daisy Hawkins picking up the rice after a wedding. He didn't like that name. And one day while walking around Bristol waiting for Jane Asher, he saw the name Rigby and eventually got Eleanor Rigby. That seemed proper. He showed it to John, picking up another idea. May I ask about the song, uh, Eleanor Rigby, what was the motivation or inspiration for that? Two queers. <laughs> Let me tell you a story about Eleanor Rigby. There was this old lady, I think in Gambia Terrace, where John and Stu had a flat. And it, I always used to feel very sorry for old spinster ladies sort of living on their own. And something um, made me want to kind of help them, I don't know. So I, she, in my mind, was always the kind of prototype for Ellen Rigby. Because it developed in the writing. I mean, immediately she became someone who cleans up in a church, you know, which it's just fiction, all of that. Um, but the prototype were some of these lonely people I used to see when I was a kid, you know. Father McKenzie was originally Father McCartney. No, that was too obvious. But he didn't want the song to be associated with his dad, so he went through a phone book and came up with Father McKenzie. That was better. It's a beautiful song in its complete form and uses a string octet, four violins, two violas, and two cellos, tastefully arranged by George Martin. <laughs> up the rice in the church where a wedding has been lives in a dream waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door who is it for all the lonely people where do they all come from all the lonely people where do they all belong Mackenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near the 
look at him working Donning his socks in the night when there's nobody there What does he care all the lonely people Where do they all come from? Eleanor Rigby, released in Britain on August 5th and in the U.S. on August the 8th. The group's 13th single release in the mother country. It eventually only reached number two on the Billboard chart. Who decided the two tracks to go as the single from the From the LP? Yeah. Um, I think we all did, you know. I think it was a case of... We knew that when the album came out, there would be uh, quite a few people going to cover it, so we thought we might as well have the hit, you know. <laughs> I think the Rigby will be another uh, yesterday. I don't know. I don't think he actually. The only thing that's similar to yesterday is the fact that uh, there's uh, violins and string instruments on it. Apart from that, I think it's nothing to do with it. Yeah. Completely different kind of tune. I think it's uh, better in a way. But I sang yesterday better. I sang Eleanor Rick terrible. <laughs> wow. No, no it's, oh. you listen to it, you know, and it's. Uh, I listen we well. Do. Okay. <laughs> The Revolver album arrived in early August, with strong shades of psychedelia apparent. The Revolver album was released in the UK on August the 5th, 1966, and in America on August the 8th. Just to show you kind of how you, how you can be wrong, you know, you can always make mistakes. I was really, one point, remember being in Germany on tour, playing the album just before it came out. I got real down because I thought it was all out of tune. Really? It really brought down everyone I kind of had to tell me. It was when we were trying to think of the title, Revolver. We suddenly thought, hey, what does a record do? It revolves. Great. You know, and it's so it was a revolver. Other titles suggested were Bubble and Squeak, Magic Circles, Abracadabra, which according to EMI was already taken, Four Sides to the Circle, Beatles on Safari, and Freewheeling Beatles. But they were all given the thumbs down, and it wasn't until the Beatles were on tour on a train ride between Munich and Eason, Germany, that the decision was made to call the album Revolver with its double meaning. George Harrison. We used to travel along on tour in the car when we had a new album and just for hours and hours be thinking and just saying titles, things that maybe titles. I remember specifically on that Revolver album, it was good because, you know, it went round and round. But it seemed so simple. It's perfect. The Beatles' dear friend Klaus Vormann designed the album cover and was given instructions on how to design the cover in a telephone call from John Lennon, which said, Scribble a few charcoal sketches, Klaus, and if the rest of the boys like them, you've got the gig.
all about uh, his new album, Revolver, and who did which to what on it. It depends, you know, like with uh, some songs I write lyrics and music, and so does John with some other songs. On some, we just get together and just do a line each, you know, words and music each. Depends, you know, how it happens and what kind of mood we're in. It's normally no formula about it, though. You find opposition from people who want you to play to the teenagers. Yeah, well, the thing is, you see, uh, we've kept quite a few songs on the album. I mean, if we just suddenly did exactly what we'd want to do... Um, in fact, I think, actually, at the moment, that is what we want to do, what, we did, what we've done on Revolver. But if we did, like, all the way out things... I mean, I suppose people think their way out. I don't, actually, but that, that kind of thing. If we did all, a whole album of them, then... Uh, We'd be doing what, like the people who do electronic music do. They go too far out too suddenly, and no one stays with them. You know, everyone else is left behind because they're miles out ahead, sort of digging all this electronic stuff. But in fact, what we've tried to do is like do the last album, Rubber Soul, a bit more towards that, then this one a bit more, and the next one should be a bit more. And if people stay with us, you know, it's great. Here's George Martin. This was something that I always said from the word go. We shouldn't just make a formula thing. We should try and be different as much as possible all the time and tried very hard to do that. And sometimes I thought we were going, maybe, uh, I thought I, you know, sort of being too risky and going too far out. But it paid off, and we and Brian and I had a, had a kind of plan. We would issue a, a single every three months and an album twice a year. And that was a kind of general scheme we worked out. It, we didn't stick religiously to it, but um, it was the broad basis of our working out. And um, every album that came out, I wanted to be different from the one before. And as soon as the Beatles realized their creative abilities in the studio, they got hooked onto this thing of really building something new each time. They wanted, they were more of interest than me. And they were coming to me, me saying, you know, what new sounds can we use? What, what instruments do you know about we don't know about? The Revolver album features three George Harrison songs, but maybe it wasn't quite so clear why George was suddenly composing like crazy. The only reason I started to write songs was because I thought, well, if they can write them, I can write them. You know, because really, everybody can write songs if they want to, if they have a desire to, and if they have sort of some musical knowledge and background. And then it's by writing them, the same as writing um, books or writing articles or painting. The more you do it, the, the better or the more you can understand how to do it. George's growing money concerns become obvious. Well, that was the point where you discover you're not actually... You know, you're paying more money to the tax man than you are, you know, you get so happy that you finally started earning money. And then you find out that, I mean, in those days, we paid 19 shillings and sixpence out of every pound. You know, that's when there was 20 shillings in the pound. And that was with super tax and surtax and tax tax and stuff. And, you know, it was ridiculous. Paul McCartney. Taxman was very George, because George, at any of the meetings, We'd have business meetings then, you know, and, and these accountants and solicitors and all these people would be explaining to us how things worked. And we were very naive, as you can see, by any of our business deals. And George would be saying, well, I don't want to pay tax, say. And they would say, no, you've got to, like everyone. And the more you make, the more they take. And George would go, well, that's not very fair. And, you know, they say, look, when you're dead, you're going to pay taxes. And I remember that. What? You can't even, you know, no, death duties, what? And so, you know, he came up with that great thing, they tax the pennies on your eyes, you know, which was George's rightful indignation at the whole idea of 
having got here, made all this money, and it was about to be, half of it was about to be removed. Taxman, a song which would feature a blistering lead guitar by Paul McCartney. George Harrison played bass on the track. One, two, three, four. <laughs> One, two. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. Cause I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Should 5% appear too small? Another beautiful song from Paul. It turned out to be one of his favorites. Written for his then-girlfriend, Jane Asher, Paul was inspired by a new release by the Beach Boys called God Only Knows off of Pet Sound. To lead a better life, I need my love to be
want her everywhere And if she's beside me I know I need never care But to love her is to need her That was written after an acid trip in LA during a break in the Beatles tour where we were having fun with the birds and lots of girls, some provided by Playboy, I believe, at the time. <laughs> and uh, Peter Fonda came in, and we were on acid, and he kept sitting with us, coming next to me and sitting next to me and whispering that he knew what it like was, I know what it's like to be dead. He was describing an acid trip he'd been on, and we didn't want to hear him like that. We were on the acid trip, and the sun's shining, the girls are dancing, and the whole thing's beautiful and 60s, and this guy, who I really didn't know who the hell he was anyway, he hadn't made Easy Ride or anything. And I knew Henry Fonda vaguely, and Jane Fonda hadn't become a sex symbol or a political then, you know. I didn't think much of her either. I didn't know much about any of them. And this guy kept coming over in shades, saying, you know what it was like to be there, and he kept leaving him at the table and going away because he was so boring, you know. And I always remembered it, but I changed it to she instead of he. It was scary, you know, a guy, can, when, you're, when you're flying high and you keep, I know what it's like to be dead, man. So I remembered the incident, you know. Oh, it's just so, so, you know. <laughs> so don't tell me about it. I don't want to know what it's like to be dead. She said, I know what it's like to be dead. I know what it is to be sad. And it's making me feel like I've never been born.
Paul McCartney said in a biography written about him called Many Years From Now that he and the band actually got into a huge argument before that song was recorded and Paul walked out. So apparently... Paul is nowhere to be heard on this song with George Harrison playing the bass line to the last song recorded on Revolver called She Said, She Said. Side two of Revolver opens with a composition by Paul, which became a favorite of many people. He said was influenced by Daydream, by the love and spoonful. George Martin is playing a muffled honky-tonk piano. to laugh and when the sun is out I've got something I can laugh about I feel good in a special way I'm in love and it's a sunny day Good day sunshine Good day sunshine Good day sunshine We take a walk 
the sun is shining down Burns my feet as they touch the ground Good day sunshine Good day sunshine Good day sunshine Then we lie Beneath the shady tree I love her and she's loving me She feels good She knows she's looking fine I'm so proud to know that she is mine Good day sunshine Good day sunshine Good day sunshine Good day sunshine This is a moody but sensational song from Paul, which has a beautiful French horn solo by symphonic player Alan Civil. Paul apparently hummed the solo to George Martin, who took it down on manuscript paper and properly arranged it. Your day breaks, your mind aches, you find that all her words of kindness linger on when she no longer needs you. She wakes up, she makes up, she takes her time and doesn't feel she has to hurry, she no longer needs you. And in her eyes you see nothing, no sign of love behind the tears, cried for no one, a love that should have lasted years. You want her, you need her, and yet you don't believe her when she says her love is dead, you think she needs you. And in her eyes you see nothing No sign of love behind the tears Cried for no one A love that should have lasted years You stay home, she goes out She says that long ago she knew someone But now he's gone, she doesn't need him Your day breaks your mind aches There will be times when all the things she said Will fill your head You won't forget her And in her eyes you see nothing No sign of love behind the tears Cried for no one A love that should have lasted years George's second piece for the album is also the beginning of his Indian experiments. I'm using the sitar, but it's not a new instrument. It's over 800 years old. Yeah, it's great. No, it's just a thing I've uh, got interested in over the last year or so. Just got very interested in Indian music generally. And just, I'm just trying to learn it now. And the more I learn, the more I'll try and use it in our music as well. And by me using sitar, 
maybe some of our fans will listen to indie music and uh, then maybe you know those people will get interested in which would be good it features an all indian backup with anil bagwat playing tabla norwegian woods use of sitar was really just an interesting texture george improved on the sitar technique he used on the norwegian woodcut from their last album but this song was the first one where he consciously tried to use the sitar and tabla on the basic track all the rest was overdubbed later was influenced by the Tamla Motown sound. Georgie Fame, another big international British jazz pop singer, advised the Beatles on the best musicians for the brass sound they wanted. Trumpeter Les Condon, one of the brass men used on the recording, described the session. He said, Apparently they felt it needed something extra. That's why we were there. The arrangement, well, they hadn't anything written down, so we just listened to what they had down and got an idea of what they wanted. Most of it went right the first time. 
Ian and I jotted down some voicings, but eventually everybody chipped in and the credit must be evenly divided. I suggested something for the trumpets for the ending, and we dubbed that on, too. I didn't think it was quite strong enough, so we dubbed it on with three trumpets again. You'll really be hearing six trumpets in that coda. It was the most relaxing session I've ever been on. The Beatles all seemed very nice fellows, and you know what? They kept asking us things. Ian Hammer and Eddie Thornton play trumpet along with Les Condon. Tenor sax is played by Alan Branscombe and Peter Coe. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there. Ooh, and I suddenly see you. Ooh, did I tell you I need you every single day of my life? You didn't run, you You knew I wanted just to hold you And had you gone, you knew in time We'd meet again for I had told you Ooh, you were meant to be near me Ooh, and I want you to hear me Say we'll be together What can I be when I'm with you? I want to stay there If I'm true, I'll never leave And if I do, I know the way there Ooh, and I suddenly see you Ooh, did I tell you I need you Every single day of my life The final track on the album was one of the best, and one of the Beatles' favorites. It was revolutionary in its construction, and pointed the direction of some of their future endeavors. John originally wanted the background to consist of thousands of monks chanting, but that was a trifle impractical. The Union had none available to lend Lennon for the session. So they used backward tapes, droning tamburas, lyrics taken from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. That's me and my uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead period. And the expression tomorrow never knows is another of Ringo's. So I gave it a throwaway title because I was a bit self-conscious about the, the lyrics of tomorrow never knows. So I took one of Ringo's malapropisms, mm-hmm. which was like hard day's night, and sort of to take the edge off the heavy philosophical lyrics. And some unusual textures. It was skillfully put together by John, Paul, George, and George Martin. And in Tomorrow Never Knows, John wanted a very spooky kind of track. He, he wanted a very ethereal 
kind of uh, sound. Uh, the words are from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, as you know. And he never liked his voice. He always wanted me to distort it. He told me he wanted him. He wanted his voice to sound like uh, a Buddhist high priest singing from a mountaintop. I thought, well, I don't know quite how I do that in Abbey Road, but um, what I did then, which I don't think had been done before, I'm not sure. I put his voice through a Leslie speaker of a Hammond organ to give a kind of willy effect. Which seemed to please him quite a bit. Turn up your mind, relax and float downstream. It is not dying. It is not dying. They'd all got their own tape recorders. And I think it was Paul, I'm not sure, who found out that by removing the raised head on a, on, a, on a recorder and putting a loop of tape on it, you could actually play a short phrase which uh, saturated itself, but went round and round and overdubbed itself and, until the point of saturation and, and made a funny sound on that, on that loop. And when you played it back, it was cute to listen to. And so they all vibed with each other. They went home and, and all made these funny little loops and they would bring, them, bring various tape loops into me listen to make them at home do you really ask quite fancy you know paul and i often talk about it do you have uh, tape recorders in your house yes a few and you just chat away yes and do loops and whatever you do ah loops now this is a ah uh, yes loops yeah from tomorrow never knows paul said that he just took a few of his loops to the studio yes he made them at home on his tape in the key of whatever the key was, and they were just near the inn. And we had six fellows with pencils holding them on. Yeah. On six machines, and uh, very desirable the whole effect, I thought. George Martin. And I collected 16 good loops. So when we mixed the Tomorrow Never Knows, it was the basic friend got involved in the mixing. Everybody was at many hands because Jeff Emmerich was doing the main balancing and each of us were doing uh, panning positions of the, of the, of the, of the uh, effects. People um, in all around the building, you know, connected up to our control panel with these silly loops held up with bits of pencil to keep the tension um, going eternally. And I, would, I, th I then decided the best way to do it was to put it through on our mixer and it was like an organ. By bringing up any one track, you yeah. could have any loop at any one time. Um, but with that, we hadn't done it before in that way, and, and that, it, it, it meant that it, on mixing, mixing was the actual performance. Mm -hmm. So that um, we had everybody on the mixer, apart from the engineer, uh, we had, um, which was Jeff Emmerich. Engineer Jeff Emmerich remembers the session. Tomorrow Never Knows was the first track that was cut on Revolver. At that time, the multi-track machine was remote from the control room and the studio. It was in another room in the, in the building. And I always remember the, the, the staff at Abbey Road sort of gathering, you know, outside the room, listening to all those backward loops and things, which went on that on that track, you know, which, because no one had ever heard anything like that before. George Martin. We had um, Paul on a couple of faders. We had John on another. I, I was on the pan pots. We were all making a concerted mix and just doing our own thing when we felt like the seagull noise should go across and so on. Mm -hmm. and uh, we did many mixes and decided on which was the best one. And uh, it was uh, a good fun day, and, and I was sort of supervising the whole thing, and it was, it was uh, turned out to be what you know now today. But we could never do that again, because it was something that happened instantly.
George Harrison thought the track was amazing, but was as unsure as the rest of them about its reception. He said, I've been told that years ago when Ornette Coleman came along with his new sounds and jazz, everybody thought it was a bit weird. Perhaps we can do that as well, change the scene a bit, start new sounds, new directions. After the Revolver album's release, the Beatles were preparing to embark on their final leg of their 1966 tour, this time heading back to the United States. Cynthia Lennon. Before leaving on tour, John confided how much he was looking forward to being at home, a proper dad to Julian and having time for us as a couple. We agreed that in the future, when he went away, Julian and I would go with him as often as possible. Happier than I'd been for months and full of plans and dreams, I decided to go on holiday with Mum and Julian while John was away. Mum suggested Pesaro in Italy. She'd been there before, to a friendly family-run hotel. No one will know you, she said. You can have a real break. Unfortunately, the Italian press were on to us before we even reached the hotel. Magazines across Italy ran pictures of me carrying three-year-old Julian from one airplane to the next when we changed flights. From then on, every time we went to the beach, we were surrounded by crowds of people, all wanting to kiss and hold the beetle bambino. Poor Julian was terrified. I had to whisk him away and hide in the hotel. The family who ran it, the Bassaninis, did their best to protect us, taking us out of the back entrance to cosy little restaurants where they knew we wouldn't be bothered. They were so kind that we promised to come back one day when all the beetle madness had died down. The Beatles reluctantly face a 15-day tour of America. As they're getting ready to leave, reports are coming in about stations banning their music and ceremonial burnings of their records. Three weeks ago in London and reprinted in the popular U.S. teen magazine called Datebook. In a magazine interview, columnist Maureen Cleave, John was asked about the state of Christianity in the West. In explaining that he thought a lot of young people were leaving the church, he said that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ. John Lennon allegedly stated, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I will be proved right. We are more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. The remark caused an uproar. Birmingham, Alabama DJs Tommy Charles and Doug Layton begin their infamous Beatle boycott. They refuse to play Beatles songs, and they exhort listeners to take their Beatles records and paraphernalia to collection points around the city in preparation for a big Beatle bonfire slated for August 19th. This is Tommy Charles. Doug Layton and I are, as you may have heard, leading a protest against the Beatles because of certain anti-Christian and anti-American statements they made, which appeared in the National Teenage Magazine. But this is your fight, not ours. We are only the leaders. If you, as an American teenager, are offended by statements from a group of foreign singers which strike at the very basis of our existence as God-fearing, patriotic citizens, then we urge you to take your Beatle records, pictures, and souvenirs to the pickup points about to be named, and on the night of the Beatles' appearance in Memphis, August 19th, they will be destroyed in a huge public bonfire at a place to be named soon. Stay tuned to Wacky for further developments. Stations in Alabama and Georgia built huge bonfires and burned the Beatles, album by album, an action of anger against Lennon. Tom, what prompted this campaign? We read in a national teenage magazine that John Lennon of the Beatles had been quoted as saying, 
Christianity was on its way out and that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. And uh, this is what started the whole thing about a week ago. Doug, don't you think the Beatles have a right to express their opinion? How do you view this? Why, yes, we don't deny them the right to express their opinion or feel the way they feel. But uh, by the same token, we have the right to express our opinion on how we feel about how they feel. Don't forget the Beatle boycott is still in effect. We haven't forgotten what the Beatles said. So by the time the Beatles arrive in Chicago on August 11th for the tour's first concert the next night, the Birmingham boycott is spreading to other parts of the country as well. Ultimately, some 35 American radio stations, mostly in the South, jump on the boycott bandwagon. August 11, 1966, the Beatles arrive in Chicago to begin their third and final tour of the United States. The Beatles kicked off the road show in concert at the Chicago International Amphitheater. John Lennon meets the press and discusses his alleged anti-Christ statement, fearing American fanatics every step of the way. Who knows how seriously someone might take Lennon's offhand remark. On August the 12th, at the start of the Beatles' last ever tour, John reluctantly apologized to the world for his statement about Jesus. Before the press conference, Beatles manager Brian Epstein makes a statement. The quote which John Lennon made to a London columnist more than three months ago has been quoted and represented entirely out of context. Lennon is deeply interested in religion and was at the time having serious talks with Maureen Cleave, who is both a friend of the Beatles and a representative for the London Evening Standard. Uh, what he said and meant was that he was astonished that in the last 50 years, the church in England, and therefore Christ, had suffered a decline in interest. 
He did not mean to boast about the Beatles' fame. He meant to point out that the Beatles' effect appeared to be, to him, a more immediate one upon certainly the younger generation. And in these circumstances, John is deeply concerned and regrets that people with certain religious beliefs should have been offended in any way whatsoever. Take a first question, please. Mr. Lemon, we're hearing a great deal of interpretations of your comment regarding the Jesus. Could you tell us what you really meant by that statement? Ah, I'll try and tell you. I was sort of deploring the attitude. The thing, I wasn't saying whatever they were saying I was saying, anyway. That's the main thing about it. And, uh... I was just talking to a reporter, but she also happened to be a friend of mine and the rest of us. At home, it was a sort of in-depth series she was doing. And so I wasn't really thinking in terms of PR or translating what I was saying. It was going on for a couple of hours, and I just said it as just to cover the subject, you know. And that, uh, and it really meant what... You know, I didn't mean it the way he said it. That's amazing. It's just so complicated. It's gone out of hand. You know. But I just meant it as that, that the Beatles, uh, I wasn't saying the Beatles are better than Jesus or God or Christianity. I was using the name Beatles because I can use them easier. And I was using, you know, because I can talk about Beatles as a separate thing and use them as an example, especially to a close friend. But I could have said TV or cinema or anything else that's popular, or motor cars are bigger than Jesus. But I just said Beatles because, you know, that's the easiest one for me. In that we're better or greater, or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person, or God as a thing, or whatever it is. You know, I just said what I said, and it was wrong, or was taken wrong, and now it's all this. There have even been threats against your life. There have been record burning, you've been banned from some radio stations. Does this bother you? Well, it worries me. Yeah, you know, it's bound to bother us. Do you think you're being crucified? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that at all. I just never thought of repercussions. I never really thought of it. I wasn't even thinking, even though I knew she she was interviewing me, that she was going to, you know, that it meant anything. What's your reaction to the repercussions? Well, when I first heard it, I thought, it can't be true. It's just one of those things like uh, bad eggs in Adelaide and things. And then when I realized it was serious, I was worried stiff. You know, because I knew the sort of how it had go on. And the more the things that had get said about it and all those miserable looking pictures of me looking like a cynic and that. And they'd go on and on and on. It'd get out of hand and I couldn't control it, you know. I, can't answer for it when it gets that big because it's nothing to do with me then. A disc jockey in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, who really started the uh, most of the repercussions, has uh, demanded an apology from you. He can have it, you know. I apologise to him if it, if he's upset and he really means it. You know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I said it really for the mess it's made, but I never meant it as as a lousy or anti-religious thing or anything. You know, and I can't say any more than that. There's nothing else to say, really. You know, no more words. But if, if an apology, is, if he wants one, I'll, you know, he can have it. I apologize to him. I think that from, only from what my views are, from what read or observed, 
of Christianity and what it was and what it has been or what it could be, it just seems to me to be shrinking. I'm not knocking it or saying it's bad. I'm just saying it, it seems to be shrinking and losing contact. And we all deplore the fact that it is, you know. That's you know, nothing better seems to be replacing it, so we're not saying anything about that. You know, and if you say something that you think may vaguely, in a way, be helpful, you know, because, I mean, you know, if it is on the decline in any way, then to say it's on the decline must be helpful. It's really going on saying, yes, it's all fine, and yeah, yeah, we're all Christians, and we're all doing this, and we're all not doing it. And, you know, there'll no, probably I just be a said, big resurgence of Christianity now. Well, we were brought up. I don't profess to be a practicing Christian. Yeah. Well, I think Christ was what he was, and I, anybody says anything great about him, I believe. But I'm not a practicing Christian like I was brought up to be. I don't have unchristian thoughts. If it had said we're more, uh, television is more popular than Jesus, I might have got away with it in reference to England, that we meant more to kids than Jesus did, or religion at that time. I wasn't knocking it or putting it down, I was just saying it as a fact. And it sort of, it is true, especially more for England than here. Was there as much uh, repercussion and re reaction to uh, your statements in, uh, uh, throughout Europe and, and other countries of the world as there was here in America? Yeah. I don't think Europe heard about it. They will now. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just England, and I sort of got away with it there, as much as nobody took offence and saw through me. Yes. And over here, it just, you know... What I said, it went the other way. Some of the wires this morning uh, on UPI said that uh, Pan American had provided each of you with a free Bible. Yeah. Well, we so never we saw that. Never saw them. John, that if Jesus were alive today, in oh. physical form, not the metaphysical one, he would find Eleanor Bigby a very religious song. A song concerned with human experience. Yeah. And well. Indeed. And yeah. I, I'm curious about your. Of that. Well, I, you know, I don't like sort of supposing that somebody like Jesus is alive now and pretending, imagining what he'd do. But I mean, if he was Jesus and he held that he was the real Jesus that had the same views as before, well, uh, Eleanor Rigby wouldn't mean much to him. But if it did come across his mind, he'd think that probably. Was it not written as an expression of the human spirit, the human it was, it, Yeah, it was written because there are... Yes, that's true, that's true. It was written because there are lonely people and, uh, you know, it oh, was I have just to have a another track to fill up the LP. <laughs> Can we talk about your music a little bit? You've gone a long way from I Want to Hold Your Hand to uh, Eleanor Rigby. What, and the rag are and so on. What, what direction are you trying to move your music? The thing, we're just trying to move it in a forward direction. And this is the point, you know, this is why we're getting in all these messes with saying things. Because, you know, uh, we're just trying to move forward. And people seem to be trying to just sort of hold us back and not want us to say anything that's vaguely sort of, you know, inflammatory. I mean, we won't, if, really, if people don't want that, you know, then we won't do it. We we'll sort of just do it privately. But I think it's better for everyone if we're just honest about the whole thing. How are you going to respond after tonight? You're going to try and tell the, explain yourself every time somebody asks someone? Well, I'll try if they keep asking me, you know. I'll try, I'll go on and on, try until I get it straight, you know. Because I just don't, 
like to be sort of thought of as what I'm really not. You know, it's nothing, nothing like me. The, the sort of the thing they're putting around is nothing to do with me as a person. You know. What about you? What was your reaction to what he said and the reaction to what he said? Well, I mean, what the context it, it was meant was the fact that Christianity is declining, and everybody knows about that. And that was the fact that was going to be made. Beatles manager Brian Epstein and DJ Murray the K. Kaufman recall the big controversy. He said these things, and she was right to report them. But I think that what upset John more than anything else was that hundreds of people were hurt by that. And I think that John is a very sympathetic person, incredibly sympathetic. And the last thing that he would want to do would be to hurt anybody's inner feelings, however much he may feel sort of... But uh, this is a basic thing with John, not to go and hurt other people, not to go and smash other people up. I know that she was a, one of the big Beatle fans. Yes. And she was upset herself. I'd imagine. I mean, she was calling me when I flew over here to see what, what was what before they came. She was on the phone every few seconds saying what could I do and how can I help and so on and so forth. Well, the, it seems, however, though, Brian, uh, the first person who should have been interviewed should have been Maureen Cleave to write what she had said, which, which they took out of context. But they weren't looking for that. As Epstein notes, Maureen Cleave is astonished that John's quote has been taken out of context and misinterpreted. In a statement, she says, and I quote, the American public seemed to have been given an impression of his views that is totally absurd. Close quote. John recalls the incident. This girl who I was pretty close to was a reporter from the London Evening Standard. In fact, we were very close. And she came, and I was just in one of my... I was just not in a good mood. Now, I wasn't making a big statement. I was not in a good mood... And there'd been a record out of something, and maybe it wasn't going so well, or they'd been knocking us in the press, you know. They were always either loving us or hating us. It was never anything in between, same as they do with Dylan or any of us now. And she came, and she was intimating that we were slipping. And I was in a bad mood. I said, slipping? We're bigger than Jesus. Just no thought whatsoever like that. I don't even print it. It looks like it's a statement. In England, nobody took any notice, you know, they know, these guys blabbing off, you know, who is he? But over here, you know, some lunatic gets his, his clan mask on and starts running around and burning crosses. So it was that flippant. We accept his apology and, and the uh, manner in which it was offered. Uh, we think it's the least we can do. An offhand uh, remark like this is not only dangerous, but it's... Uh, it can be very impressionable on the young folks, and we think that uh, they have made a wise decision, and we accept their apology. Coming up in a moment, religious remarks trap John Lennon. Crazed Americans pose a threat to the Beatles on tour. The Beatles get Ku Klux Klan in Tennessee and give their onstage U.S. farewell in San Francisco. information or to contact the show visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com 
also visit at yesterday pod on twitter and search yesterday and today podcast on facebook see you next time I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And we are the co-hosts of the Third Men Podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast where we go over the White Stripes, Third Man Records, the list goes on. And occasionally, we do a funny voice or two. So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. (laughs) Hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally... We'll do an all-star podcast. We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once. That is true. (laughs) We are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird. See? We weren't (laughs) even lying.